Looking back to press on well. Looking back to press on well. It is January the 7th, 2018. We are seven days in. So how are you doing with those New Year resolutions? I am already struggling. Having set myself the totally unrealistic resolutions that I set myself last year, eat healthy, exercise more, lose weight. And because I resolved to do those things back in 2017, I can now look back and hopefully learn from my mistakes. One of the big ones that I can see from last year, staying up unnecessarily late to watch Netflix. And because I did that more than I certainly should have, well, first it meant I raided the fridge well after 11 o'clock at night, so much for healthy eating. It meant I was just too tired the next morning to get up early for a run on my treadmill. It just sits there dormant to this day. I think we're using it as a clothes horse right now. So much for regular exercise. And I am too strung out for the rest of the day to be disciplined with my ideal diet plan and so, so much for losing weight. Looking back, it can be painful remembering our failures from before, but it can also be helpful. It can help us to be wise to press on forward to a better tomorrow. As we continue in Deuteronomy in these chapters this morning, we are given a series of flashbacks looking back. Israel are forced to look back at what has gone before as they come to this pivotal point in their story as God's people. Uh, what we started in Deuteronomy last week, we saw God has now brought them to the edge of the land that He had promised all along. And as they are preparing to enter the land of God's blessing, Moses is teaching them, and he starts with this brief history lesson, a rather painful history lesson for Israel, forcing them to look back on the errors of the past, that they might press on wisely to a better tomorrow. For us as a church today, we need to remember that this history has been recorded not merely for Israel's sake. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 10, 16, that th these things, so verse 6 says, these things took place as an example for us that we might not desire evil as they did. This history is just as relevant for us today as a church as it was for Israel all those years ago because here we see the, the foolishness of desiring evil rather than life in God's rest. So let's come to our first flashback here in these verses and Israel's first false start. And, and, and we begin with a case of deja vu, of deja vu. Come with me to chapter 1, verse 19. Let's read. <clears throat> then we set out from Horeb and went through all that great and terrifying wilderness that you saw on the way to the hill country of the Amorites, as the Lord our God commanded us, and we came to Kadesh Barnea. 
Moses is starting with a case of deja vu for the people. He reminds this generation that their forefathers had come as close to the promised land as where they were now standing, right on the very edge of it. God had brought his people, their forefathers, out of slavery in Egypt by his own mighty hand, and through Moses as their leader, delivered them to himself at Horeb, Mount Sinai. He had given them his good law, and then faithfully again brought them from that mountain through the wilderness to the land, to the edge of the land he had promised them. Despite all of the grumbling that we read of in Exodus and Numbers as God's people routinely, continually failed to trust him and so sinned against him instead. But God provided faithfully all along the journey and they reached the edge of the promised land. So we're told here, verse 19, they came to Kadesh Barnea. We've got a map here to help us. We're going to see this map a few times this morning. And you've got it on your outline as well, so you can see if you can't make it out on the screen. That, that, that dotted line in the bottom left-hand corner is possibly the route that Israel took up from Mount Sinai in the south and up to the point that God brought them to Kadesh Barnea that you see just there. In verse 21, he, he commanded them, the previous generation, see the Lord God has set the land before you. Go up, take possession as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has told you. Do not fear or be dismayed. They, they are now, if we can just go back to the map for a second, they are now just at the southern point uh, the, of the land of Canaan, the land of God's promise. And now God says, go up, take the land I've promised you. And with that, some of the men in the tribe, suggested, well, let's send spies into the land. Uh, we know from Numbers 13 that God was behind that plan, and he tells Israel, yes, send 12 men, one representative from each of the tribes, and they, they went in and they spied out the land of Canaan, and they returned with a field report for the rest of the people. Look in verse 25 of Deuteronomy 1. Uh, and they took in their hands some of the fruit of the land, and brought it down to us, and brought us word again, and said, it is a good land that the Lord our God is giving us. He just as God had promised all along through his word, the land he was giving his people was abundant. It was good, rich with provision. But at this really exciting point, while they're just on the edge, things go rapidly downhill as Israel Rebel, verse 26. Yet you would not go up, but rebelled against the command of the Lord your God, and you murmured in your tents and said, Because the Lord hated us, he has brought us out of the land of Egypt to give us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us. See, Israel's reaction to the words of the spies is treacherous. Rather than pepping them up to go into the land as God had commanded, they go in the very opposite direction. They go back into their tents. And they hide. And they grumble against God, accusing him of bringing them all this way only so that they might fall at the hands of another nation. You see, we know that the report from the spies had not been entirely positive. So we're told in verse 28 how they react. Our brothers have made our hearts melt, saying, the people are greater and taller than we. 
The cities are great and fortified up to heaven, and besides, we have seen the sons of Anakim there. That's pretty much what 10 of the 12 spies had reported to the people, not the goodness of the land, but the greatness of the people who were already there, the Anakim specifically, these giant men who were very able warriors. And the people fear them. Despite Moses' encouragement, see verse 30, the Lord your God who goes before you will himself fight for you, just as he did for you in Egypt before your eyes, and in the wilderness where you have seen how the Lord your God carried you as a man carries his son all the way that you went until you came to this place. It's not as if this is the first test of faith for Israel at this point. God had done so much in his faithfulness to bring them to here against all the odds, the plagues of Egypt that brought about their liberation, parting the Red Sea, destroying Pharaoh's army behind them, feeding them faithfully on their journey all the way through the wilderness despite their grumbling. But still, having witnessed all that with their own eyes, they fear these other men rather than the God who had delivered them so faithfully. Well, with this, God's patience runs out. Rebellion has consequences. You see, as his people refuse in their lack of faith to enter into God's rest, well, so he refuses to let them enter into his rest for good. See what he says in verse 35. Not one of these men of this evil generation shall see the good land that I swore to give to your fathers. This generation have blown it. Only two, Caleb and Joshua, the spies who honored the Lord, said the land is great. We must go. God will be with us. Only they will enter into the land along with the next generation. And out of sheer desperation, this generation, Israel, having distrusted God, And being told by God, no, you will not go in, they go against the Lord's command, and they prepare to take the land themselves. Verse 44. We see the result. They they, they try to take the land themselves. Verse 44. Then the Amorites, who lived in that hill country, came out against you and chased you, as bees do, and beat you down in Seir as far as Hormah. Chased you? as bees do. Have you ever been chased by bees? I have. I was on a church picnic back in the UK as a young boy. We were playing on, the, on this hillside, and, and, uh, jumping up and down, doing all crazy things, and suddenly these bees came shooting out of what was an underground hive. We had no idea it was there, of course, and they honed in on me as I panicked, and they stung me all over the face, again and again and again, as I ran in agony back to my family for relief. It was not a fair fight. I didn't stand a chance. And that is the lesson that Israel learn here, that apart from God, they do not stand a chance, as they seek to advance into his land without him. No, they were chased out by the Amorites, by the people of the land, as bees chase. Verse 45. You returned and wept before the Lord, but the Lord did not listen to your voice or give ear to you. Enough was enough. And so Israel failed to enter into God's land securely. They move away, 
back toward their former place of slavery in Egypt. Here's our map again. We see if you see that uh, solid line going from Kadesh Barnea across to Purim and then down, they move, they start going south, away from the promised land into the wilderness, which is where Israel wandered for many years. 2 verse 1, chapter 2 verse 1, then we turned and journeyed into the wilderness in the direction of the Red Sea, as the Lord told me, and for many days we traveled around Mount Seir. Many days, many years, until this faithful generation had all but perished. So the first lesson God wants the new generation now standing on the edge of the promised land, hearing this history, what he wants them to learn now is that disobeying God out of fear of man never pays. Tragically, that would be the pattern for this generation and the generations of Israel to come. They will continually go astray as they fear not God, but the nation's around them. They refuse to be holy for him, set apart, and instead they compromise their allegiance time and again. Who will we fear this year as God's people? Uh, We're not Israel, of course. We haven't been called by God as one nation out of many in Christ. We haven't been called to remain separate from the nations. We are now made up as God's people as the nations but we have still been called to fear the Lord rather than the world lost in sin around us. We have still been called to show ourselves holy, having been made holy by the blood of Christ. As Israel refused to fear God, they perished away from his rest. Christ warns us as his people in the most extreme terms, if we are to know life in his eternal rest, Well, then we are called to fear him, to put him first above all others. Matthew 10, 37, coming up. Jesus says to us, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Now, Jesus wants us to honor and love our family. He's not doing away with that. He wants us to love them faithfully, but to love them faithfully will never mean putting family or anyone else above him as Lord, fearing anyone above him as Lord. As we start this year, who will we fear? Who will we seek to please? Our colleagues at work who want us after a long day, the daily grind, to, to go out with them, to drink heavily, get drunk, gamble to join them in places we know we cannot go and remain faithful. Our own family who do not agree with our allegiance to Christ and they want us to disown him for their own wishes, to accord with their own beliefs. Our friends at school, at college, at uni who want us to join in with the cheating and the gossiping that is rife and will ridicule us if we don't. Israel were called to fear God in the face of real adversity, to trust him. Uh, The Anakim, they were no joke. They were a serious warrior army. But Israel should have known from their past experience God is so much greater. He would deliver them. They just needed to trust him. I know personally that one of the reasons I can be so quick to waver in my faith and obedience and sin against God in the fear of others seeking to please them 
It's because I've lost sight of just how faithful God is. His promise to me in Christ that even in death, the claws of death cannot ultimately harm me. But away from Him, in hardness of sin that could lead to an unbelieving heart, I am lost. No hope of lasting rest. Who should we fear? But I know I can be so quick to abandon Christ when the heat is turned up. Fearing God is hard in the moment. This new generation of Israel, they needed encouragement. They needed to remember how faithful God had been to them as a people so that they would fear and trust Him wisely no matter what they face. And we need that encouragement today as well. So now Israel look back and they see God's faithfulness in the face of their faithlessness, even in the face of their rebellion. Let's come to the second flashback as God's faithfulness endures. Firstly, in provision. Chapter 2, verse 2. Then the Lord said to me, you have been traveling around this mountain country long enough. Turn northward. Okay, so close to 40 years have passed since they left Kadesh Barnea. And many of the previous generation have already died. And now Moses leads this generation again toward the promised land, what is known as the Transjordan journey. That solid line on the right-hand side going up from the southern point. They're not going back to Kadesh Barnea in the south, you'll see. No, they're heading up on the eastern side, away from the land, and so that they're going to come in from the north East. And to do that, they need to travel through these other territories of Edom and Moab and coming close to Ammon in the far northeast. These were not part of the land that God had promised his people. And God is really clear with them how they're to behave as they travel through these other territories. Come with me to chapter 2, verse 4. You are about to pass through the territory of your brothers, the people of Esau, who live in Seir, and they will be afraid of you. So be very careful. Do not contend with them. I will not give you any of their land, no, not so much as for the sole of the foot to tread on, because I have given Mount Seir to Esau as a possession. Israel must not seek to colonize any of these other territories, starting with Edom, because God in his sovereignty, as the God of the nations, not just Israel, has already decided who that land will be for, for the, for. Uh, uh, Jacob's brothers Esau, that his descendants, not for them. Again, they just have to trust as they go through foreign enemy territory that God would look after them as they simply pass through. And that is exactly what he does. They, they pass through Edom to start, start and everything that they need, they can buy from the people and they receive it without any threat. They are not harmed at all. They reach the border of Moab. And we have the same pattern again in chapter 2. Israel told, you, you, you are not to contend with the Moabites this time. This land is not for you. And they simply passed through. But we're given one extra detail when it comes to the land of Moab. Look down in chapter 2, verse 10. See what we learn about this land. In the parenthesis, the Emim formerly lived there, a people great and many and tall as the Anakim. Like the Anakim, they are also counted as Rephaim, but the Moabites call them Emim. Now, why this interesting point, this little side point? 
Well, remember who the Amakim were? They were the people who the previous generation had feared rather than God and so perished. These tall, terrifying warriors. And see, God led this generation safely now through a land full of Anakim-like people. Once again, they come to no harm whatsoever. Once again, every provision is granted. And see what we're told at the end of this section in 2.14. And the time from our leaving Kadesh Barnea until we crossed the brook Zered was 38 years until the entire generation, that is, the men of war, had perished from the camp as the Lord had sworn to them. It was by this point that nearly all of the previous faithless generation had died. With this visible reminder in the land of of Moab that they had feared men rather than God, men who were not worthy of being feared because God delivered his people as he always promised he would. Even these men like the Anakim, great and strong. Well, they reach the border of the promised land, having gone through Moab. Verse 18. Today you are to cross the border of Moab at Ah. So you see where they are now. I put a little red cross there for you guys. So that might be where they are right now, basically, just on the southern tip on that side of the promised land. But before they can go any further, again, they are reminded of one final territory that is denied. Up in the far northeast, Ammon. As Israel begin to take the land very close to this area of Ammon, they're not to touch that land at all. Again, they're being tested to see who are they going to truly fear and obey. This whole journey, the Transjordan journey, it's a powerful reminder for this generation. God had been totally faithful in his provision. They, they had all that they needed. They came to no harm. But here, as they cross the border of Moab into the land that God did intend for his people, now we see God's faithfulness in a very different light not in terms of merely provision, but in terms of his judgment, his judgment. God saved and secured them in the land of his promise through his judgment on the other nations. So we come to God's faithfulness in judgment. Uh, We're told about two conquests that took place before the time of Deuteronomy. First up, King Sihon, the Amorite of Heshbon. Come with me to 2 verse 24. They were told, rise up, set out on your journey, and go over the valley of the Arnon. Behold, I have given into your hands Sihon, the Amorite, king of Heshbon, and his land. Begin to take possession and contend with him in battle. Israel are told by God, now you fight. Take possession of the land. And to start with, They are to remove the Amorites who possess it. So we're told 2 verse 26, Moses sent messengers to this king Sihon of the Amorites. He, at first he requests safe passage and provisions that Israel would pay for, just like the journey before. And on a human level, it's a prudent measure. God God isn't displeased with that at all. But just as God said it would happen, King Sihon did not play ball. See how he responds in verse 30. But Sihon, the king of Heshbon, would not let us pass by him. For the Lord your God hardened his spirit and made his heart obstinate that he might give him into your hand as he is 
this day. It's, it's very similar to back in Exodus, isn't it? When God hardened Pharaoh's heart. How do we understand this, this hardening? Well, what it basically means is God allows Pharaoh before Sihon now to fall further into his own wickedness. It is not that God forced this king to do wickedness that he did not want to do. Sihon was wicked. And God let him fall further into his sin as Sihon of his own volition says, I'm going to go and fight and seek to kill God's people. And he tried it, and he and his entire army were decimated. See verse 34? And we captured all his cities at that time and devoted to destruction every city, men, women, and children. We left no survivors. Yes, Israel left no one alive. Then they moved on to the next enemy in King Og of Bashan. And we see the same events repeat. God told his people he has given Og into their hands. And Og, again, just like Sihon, comes out against Israel with his army, and they all fall before Israel as God had promised. And again, we're told, verse 6, we devoted them to destruction, as we did to Sihon, the king of Heshbon, devoting to destruction every city, men, women, and children. And I know, I know we are not used to seeing the Lord dealing with people like this. It is a hard word, isn't it? What has been termed holy war. War sanctioned by God with his people serving as his agent, his army. How do we reconcile this with the God who we know as our Heavenly Father, who has shown us such incredible mercy in his Son? Well, I think what we saw about King Sihon's behavior earlier helps us to see things a bit more clearly here. We have a wicked king who was allowed by God to fall further into his own wicked desires. Sihon decided in his heart, I will go and I will fight Israel. And Og was no different. He did the same. Friends, we are not dealing with innocent parties here as if God is allowing the destruction of an innocent people for the benefit of his own chosen people. No, God had told Abraham more than 400 years before this point, your descendants will not take one foot into the land before that time. And the reason given, Genesis 15, 16, they shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. The iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. What we have here is not human-driven genocide, which is absolutely wicked. No, what we have here in this hard text is God acting in judgment to deal with the iniquity of nations who have rallied against him in sin like us, living in God's world without right reference to him as creator and Lord of our lives. We struggle with these verses. I struggle with these verses because we have hearts that are prone to having a very low view of the seriousness of sin 
and of the holiness of God. You see, our world doesn't appreciate either of those realities, and sometimes we, even as his people, don't as well. Here, we see in a very stark way God in his holiness dealing with sin. And it is shocking, I agree. You see the penalty for sin up close in this way. As, as nations turn away from the God who gave them life and live as they see fit in rebellion against him, well, so the nations have effectively turned away from life itself. Instead, they face God as a perfect, holy judge who cannot abide sin in his presence, a terrifying, holy God. You know, just as a bright light leaves no room for the darkness around it, so God, in his purity, must extinguish that which is wicked in the end. Friends, even what we have here in these holy wars is effectively a temporal judgment. It's not the final judgment. Yes, it is heartbreaking to see children losing their lives. As a father, personally, my heart goes out to them as they suffer in this way for the sins of, of their nation. But even this judgment is still only temporal. These nations are cut off from life in this world. This text has nothing to say about their state in the next. And yet it's still these kind of verses I know that lead some to saying, oh, the God of the Old Testament is such an angry and violent and mean beast. And the God of the New Testament is an ever gracious and forgiving grandfather. If we're thinking along those lines, we need to read Revelation again last book of the Bible. You see, the judgment that we see there on sin is actually far more severe. As we are told in ultimate terms that all that is wicked is shut out from God's presence forever. You know, what we see here, as painful as it is, is a shadow of the judgment day to come. As we grapple with these verses as God's people, the only wise response is to look back ourselves to where God's wrath and mercy meet in the cross. As Jesus, God's Son, our Lord, endured the full penalty of sin that he did not deserve so that we who have sinned might escape it by his precious blood. God saves his people through judgment. That is the pattern. He did so with Israel and the nations. He did so with Christ at the cross for our sakes. And so he will do it again when Christ returns as judge and Lord of our world. And so, friends, our only hope, if we have not yet done, is to bow the knee to Christ before that great and terrible day. The one who alone has died our death that we might know the promise of life with God in his rest rather than judgment, having been cleansed of our every sin to make us fit for God's presence again through his blood, through faith in him alone. Uh, these hard verses, and they are hard verses, they should cause us to hold fast to Christ all the more, to resolve to entrust ourselves to him completely, for he alone can deliver us from this judgment. God does begin to deliver on his promise to Israel, and they do start to receive the land of his blessing. Let's go to flashback three, a bittersweet encouragement. Come with me to chapter three, verse 12. When we took possession of this land at that time, 
I gave to the Reubenites and the Gadites the territory beginning at Ara, which is on the edge of the valley of the Arnon, and half the hill country of Gilead with its cities. The rest of Gilead and all Bashan, the kingdom of Og, that is, all the region of Argob, I gave to the half-tribe of Manasseh. So a few of the tribes, Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh, they are now allotted portions of the land that has now been taken. But these guys in these tribes, they cannot settle down and get comfortable yet. There is still work to be done. Verse 19, only your wives, your little ones, and your livestock shall remain in the cities I've given to you until the Lord gives rest to your brothers as to you, and they also occupy the land that the Lord your God gives them beyond the Jordan. All the fighting men from these tribes, they must still assist the rest of Israel in taking the land that remains before they can settle down themselves. And this brings us to the point where we do find God's people before Moses in Deuteronomy. It's just one final bittersweet reminder for them before they prepare to advance, to take what remains of the land. Joshua, as Moses' successor, is commanded to press on with the people as God again says, I will be with you, I will deliver you, I will never abandon you, just as I did with King Sion and Og. There's a sweet encouragement here, but for Moses, it ends on a note of bitterness. See verse 24. O Lord God, you have only begun to show your servant your greatness and your mighty hand. For what God is there in heaven or on earth who can do such works and mighty acts as yours? Please let me go over and see the good land beyond the Jordan, that good hill country and Lebanon. See, Moses, of course, is eager to set foot in the rest of the land as well, having by God's grace carried the people this far, but God's judgment must stand. He is counted with the faithless generation before, and so God will not allow him to enter. He just makes one small allowance. He's allowed to go up onto a high ridge, still away from the rest of the land, but to a high ridge overlooking the rest of Canaan to see with his eyes not step with his feet, but see with his eyes what God had promised his people. It's a bitter reminder to Israel and to us, sin has serious consequences. Joshua will continue, Moses will not. How should we respond to this final bittersweet encouragement? Well, friends, again, we need to remember the greater Moses that we have in Christ, Uh, the one who never faltered, the one who did, in obedience and faith, do all that was necessary to bring us himself into God's rest of eternal life. Jesus did what Moses had failed to do in his sin, obedient in all things, even unto death for our sakes, so that we might be made fit for God's presence, not by relying on ourselves, but by depending on him. As we look back to him, and the love he's shown us in, our, in his death. Well, we have, as God's people today, all the more reason to press on than Israel ever did. We have that wonderful promise. We have been saved by his blood from start to finish, and yet we are still on our own journey, aren't we? We are still waiting for the rest of promise for all those who remain faithful to Christ in the end. And nothing in this world is worth compromising that future for. Not acceptance from our family, not respect from our friends, not acknowledgement from our peers. No, as God's people, we are to press on, 
in faith, fearing Him, and so loving our neighbors by witnessing faithfully to Christ as Lord, refusing to compromise for an easier ride in the here and now because we know where we are heading. And we know that God is faithful to get us there. He will not lose one whom he has secured in his son. Whatever resolutions we decide to make for 2018, resolve above all to know and love Christ as Lord. To sit under this life-giving word and make him the apple of your eye. Encourage one another to do the same. Because in him and in him alone we do have the promise of rest to come. That's what we were made for. That's what we were saved for. So press on in faith till we reach that great day. And let's pray for one another as we seek to do that. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this painful but essential lesson from your people's history this morning. We thank you that it shows us the seriousness of sin and again why it was necessary that even it took your son to in his own obedience give his life to die that we might live. Pray, Lord, that as Israel are encouraged here, you would help us to be continually looking back, repenting, believing, rejoicing in Christ in whom we have the promise of forgiveness and eternal life and so pressing on in faith, treasuring Him, and fearing Him as Lord above all, whatever might stand in our way, knowing that just as you did indeed deliver your people, so you will deliver us in the end. So help us to prize that rest to come and to live for it this day, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.